What are the details behind an anti-corporate school meal program, Facebook's partnership with the Atlantic Council, and other stories that have been suppressed in the mainstream media? How does corporate media's manufacture of consent resemble the logic of Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass? Has the term deep state and elements of conspiracy culture been co-opted to the service of Trump and American fascism? In what ways has the Trump administration taken the U.S. empire to new and dangerous extremes? What are some of the critical angles not getting enough attention in the mainstream discourse around the fires in Australia, the Amazon, California, and elsewhere? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, we take a look at the most important and underreported stories of 2019. We first hear from Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored about the most censored stories of the past year. In our second half hour, Abby and Robbie Martin of Media Roots Radio elaborate on some of the developments of 2019 that caught their attention as independent media journalists. On this week's program, 2019 Year in Review, from corporate capture of social media to Trump's war agenda to climate change. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 17th, 2020. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio stations, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation, and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. As the trial approaches, the lawyers for the Trump administration's prosecution of the four Venezuelan embassy protectors who were arrested last May are asking the court to make sure the jury is kept ignorant about the facts and circumstances surrounding the actions of the protectors. In a recently filed motion by government lawyers, state prosecutors are seeking to severely restrict what can be discussed during the trial, scheduled for February 11, 2020. Judge Beryl Howell will hear arguments on the motion at the pre-trial hearing on January 29. What does the prosecution want to repress? Everything that might give the defenders the ability to challenge the state's case. That comes from the article, Trump Prosecutors Make Move to Ensure That Embassy Protectors Are Convicted, by Kevin Zeese, Ajamu Baraka, and Baman Azad, posted January 15th, originally published at the site for the Embassy Protectors Defense Committee. In a national security state, national security is everything. Once the Pentagon or the CIA utter those two words to justify their assassination of an American citizen, the other three branches of government, including the judiciary, immediately go silent, passive, and deferential. Can Americans regain their freedom? Of course, but to do so requires a dismantling of the national security state form of governmental structure and a restoration of a limited government republic form of governmental structure. 
That comes from the article, The Pentagon's and CIA's Power to Assassinate Americans by Jacob G. Hornberger, posted January 15th, originally posted at the site for the Future of Freedom Foundation. According to historians, the CPI's grip on war news was ironclad as they recounted the average citizen's experience. Quote, Every item of war news they saw in the country weekly, in magazines, or in the city daily, picked up occasionally in the general store, was not merely officially approved information, but precisely the same kind that millions of their fellow citizens were getting at the same moment. Every war story had been censored somewhere along the line, at the source, in transit, or in the newspaper offices in accordance with voluntary rules established by the CPI, unquote. And while the CPI was officially disbanded on August 21st, 1919, their influence is still felt today. Overall, the CPI was considered a glorious success and paved the way for today's 24-7 news cycles that promote endless wars. That comes from the article, Over 100 Years Ago, the U.S. Government Lied Us into World War I, by Jeff Harris, posted January 15th, originally published at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Technology is destroying us and the planet. The pollution from technology is phenomenal. 5G itself may do us in. The destruction of privacy, identity, and freedom by the digital revolution is far beyond George Orwell's imagination, insouciant humans' delight in the gadgets that are turning themselves into unfree people who are under control but who themselves control nothing. That comes from the article, The Machines Have Us Trained for Obedience, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted January 15th, originally published on the author's blog, Paul Craig Roberts Institute for Political Economy. The axis of resistance is fighting back against the war lies, the terrorism, the permanent warfare. It is fighting for international law, nation-state sovereignty, and territorial integrity. It is fighting against globalized fascism, poverty, and despair. Those of us in the West who still believe in the ideals of democracy and freedom need to denounce the NATO occupation of our lands, our minds, and our pocketbooks. We need to denounce wars of aggression, imperialism, and war lies. That comes from the article, Permanent War and Poverty or Widespread Truth Awareness, by Mark Taliano, post-January 14th, originally published on the author's website, www.marktaliano.net. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The year 2019 is behind us, and as we do every year at this time, we'd like to go over some of the most suppressed and censored stories of the past year. Taking us through that tour of underreported stories is none other than Andy Lee Roth. Andy Lee Roth is the Associate Director of Project Censored, a media research program which fosters student development of media literacy and critical thinking skills as applied to news media censorship in the United States. Welcome back to the show, Andy. 
Thanks so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you again. Just quickly, could you remind our listeners again of your process? How does your team go about assessing and evaluating the, the monstrous number of stories out there? Yeah, each year, so that so we'll talk today about some of the top 25 stories that feature in this year's book, Censored 2020, Through the Looking Glass. Um, those stories have been culled and made their way to the, you know, the top of the heap um, from a, a batch of about 300 stories that we've been reviewing, identi- first identifying, vetting, and reviewing over the past 12 months. Um, and so... Those stories are initially identified by student researchers who are part of Project Censored's Campus Affiliates Program, uh, which links uh, college and university campuses across North America and some years around the world um, in a collective effort to, to, uh, to do what the project does, to identify and vet and bring to wider attention uh, these important but underreported independent news stories. In the spring of each year, we vote. Um, all the faculty and students who have worked on researching stories vote in a first round to whittle that list of, um, you know, nearly 300 stories down to about 40 or so candidates. And then that list goes to our international panel of uh, judges uh, who are all media experts of one sort or another, whether they're editors and journalists themselves or media scholars. Uh, we have a former Federal uh, Communications Commission member on our panel, uh, and the panel of judges has the, the challenging task of whittling that, that pool of about 40 stories down to 25 and rank ordering them. So they vote to do that. The end result is a list of uh, 25 stories that we feel confident are uh, very important, high-quality journalism, on topics that we are also equally confident the corporate news media have done a poor job of covering. They've either marginalized those stories, distorted them, or, all, uh, or omitted them altogether. Um, and we, the mission of the project is in part to try to bring wider attention to these underreported stories and also, of course, to bring wider attention to the, uh, the, the vital independent news outlets and independent journalists who bring us these stories that we otherwise would know nothing about. Yeah, and uh, I think we should just get into the stories now. Uh, there are quite a few themes that uh, you explore in the, this list. Uh, let's start with the, a good news story, I think. Uh, it's a number 23 story on more equitable school meal programs, and that's a project that not only undermines corporate control of a huge market, but connect school children more closely with the source of their food. Could you give us a little more background on that story? This is about uh, uh, communities uh, across the country uh, uh, coordinating in order to address a problem. Um, the root of the problem is that uh, school lunch programs, school meal programs, are in the United States a $3 billion uh, business each year. So we're talking here about uh, incredible amounts of concentrated wealth in the business of providing what are often, uh, uh, you know, subpar, uh, not very tasty, not very attractive meals to school students. So there's an alternative to these big corporations like Aramark and the Compass Group and Sodexo, um, and that's what this story is about. This story is about how um, the organizations like the Community Coalition for Real Meals, the Food Revolution Network, and others are working to create these regional farm-to-school hubs that not only provide 
uh, more environmentally sustainable lunches and better tasting food for students, but they also uh, boost the local economy by creating um, both training and employment opportunities for skilled workers who are the ones who, who work to, uh, to process uh, the food that eventually comes to the students in these schools. So it's a, this is truly a good news story, a win-win kind of story across the board. Um, I should add here, because I mentioned the student uh, involvement, this is a story that was originally uh, uh, vetted for Project Censored by Diana Mayorga, who's a student at the City College of San Francisco in California, and it was reported by Yes Magazine and Friends of the Earth. Mm. And uh, as I understand it, they, they, it also um, there's a hope that uh, provisions will create uh, uh, be helpful for uh, owns uh, farms owned by women and people of color. Yes, yes. There, I mean, there are multiple dimensions to this story that make it a positive one. Um, and um, ironically, I guess in an age where we almost reflexively critique anything and everything that the Trump administration does. Um, the Farm Bill passed by the Trump administration in the last year actually included some language that may actually uh, make um, the, the processes underway by people like the Food Revolution Network and the Community Coalition for Real Meals. It may actually uh, make it legislatively, um, um, legally easier for them to do so. So that's a, a, a rare bit of good news from uh, an administrative decision coming out of the Trump administration. Andy, Project Censored always seems to have stories related to police abuse of power, uh, as well as topics about incidents in schools. And and you have a story that connects the two. Uh, the, the number 21 story, court ruling provides blueprint to reform excessive discriminatory policing in schools. What are the key elements there? Yeah, this is another story. Uh, I'll, I'll start out... Uh describing this story in a way that it won't sound like a good news story, um, uh, but I'll come around to the positive upshot of this. Um, in January of 2019, the California state courts ruled that Stockton Unified School District had to rein in its use of so-called school resource officers, who are basically cops in the schools. Um, the, the state court's ruling was the result of a three-year investigation that had found widespread abuses in the policing of Stockton schools everything from excessive force and unconstitutional searches and seizures to frequent arrests that targeted some of the school's youngest members. Um, an amazing, in one year, more than 180 students who were aged nine years or under were arrested by police in Stockton schools. So that's what was wrong. Uh, and there was also a racial element. Uh, uh, that The research into the Stockton district's policing policies found that it systemically discriminated against black and Latino students, um, who were, you know, black students aged 10 or greater were 148% more likely to be arrested than other students, for instance. So that doesn't sound like a good news story, but the court ruling is really the nut of this story that was brought forward uh, also by Yes Magazine and also by EdSource. Um, while Stockton was under investigation, um, the arrests in Stockton schools dropped by 75%. And the court ruling that resulted is what Yes Magazine called a major milestone. Um, so, in other words, it's a milestone not just for Stockton and students in Stockton Unified School District schools, but also as a model that other school districts across the nation could implement where there's been excessive discriminatory policing. Um, 
So the, the, the court ruling that Yes Magazine described as a major milestone included uh, requiring Stockton Unified School District to institute clear policies for when and how students are referred to law enforcement, for how force, uh, the use of force policies uh, on Stockton school campuses, assuring that searches and seizures don't violate students' Fourth Amendment rights. Um, and, uh, and this is one that sounds small, but it's critical in terms of students' futures. Students who were arrested under the biased uh, policing processes are to have their arrest records expunged uh, so that they won't carry that stigma moving forward. Mm. And all of this will be monitored for the next five years by California's Department of Justice to make sure that these uh, corrections to the the excessive discriminatory policing in Stockton schools is actually um, implemented. Yeah, so yeah. it's a good news story. Um, this one came to Project Censored from work by uh, Vinca Rivera Pera, who's a student at the College of Marin, also in California. Okay, excellent. Now, surveillance and the Internet also seems to be a recurring theme uh, in your top 25 lists. Uh, there are a few f- stories in the top 25 for this year that, that relate to this, but one that stood out for me was the number two story um, that's uh, having to do with think tank partnerships establishing establish Facebook as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. What's the prime yeah. concern with Facebook's partnerships with the Atlantic Council and, and those other entities? Right. So, I mean... Uh, so there's really two components to this story. One is featured in the book, and then um, this story has actually moved forward since the book came out. Um, and I'll, I'll update uh, quickly at the end of, of, of my description of what's the, the actual number two story as featured in Censor 2020. Um, so under the guise of fighting fake news uh, in, in quotation marks and protecting U.S. democracy from, quote, foreign influence, um, in 2018, uh, Facebook uh, established these partnerships with the Atlantic Council, which is, of course, a NATO-sponsored think tank, and two other U.S. government creations from the Cold War era, the National Democratic Institute, or the NDI, and the International Republican Institute. And um, as a lot of independent news outlets, I won't even try to name all of them here, but they uh, crucial reporting from Mint Press News, Common Dreams, uh, indeed, global research um, and others. Um, this was basically lofty rhetoric about safeguarding Western democracies, uh, but what it was, in fact, was uh, a, a kind of a form of state censorship with Facebook serving as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. And I will, uh, uh, without trying to get too far into the weeds, just say a few things about um who these think tanks are and why it's important when we hear the term think tank to realize these are not sort of neutral, objective, just the facts uh, 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 kinds of organizations. The Atlantic Council is, is uh, based in Washington, D.C. It's funded by the U.S. Department of State, branches of the U.S. military, and uh, you know more than a handful of major multinational corporations, uh, including some of the big fossil fuel uh, entities like Chevron, ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell, as well as uh, it receives funding from another a number of foreign governments. So the idea that Facebook is going to fight fake news while getting um, uh, advice and counsel from uh, 
entities that are basically the, the tool of U.S. Uh, I'll use this term now, uh, although it's not so much in the reports, that a tool of like U.S. empire um, is a deeply disturbing development. Entities that are invested in propaganda <laughs> uh, slash fake right, news. Right, yeah. No, these are, these are entities that have from the start, in effect, from their, from their institution, their origins are as uh, promoting U.S. And, all, and, and, and in a broader sense, Western democratic um, uh, propaganda and, 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 you know, under the guise of the values of democracy. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and then, and then when you look at what Facebook has been doing, um, you know, in that time, it's quite surprising, right? And I think probably almost everyone listening to this program will remember how in October of 2018, Facebook deplatformed more than 800 accounts, most of which were organizations like Anti-Media, Countercurrent News, the Free Thought Project, RT America's correspondents were deplatformed, right? And I think that the, the import of that comes into even sharper focus if we update this story to what happened in October, if I can just briefly point people to this. Uh, in October of this year, Facebook announced that it would launch Facebook News, uh, which is the formal name of a partnership between Facebook and a number of major uh, American news publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Um, and the, the, deal, the terms of the deal uh, were not specified, but insiders said that Facebook would, for the first time, begin to pay for content, for news content. Some of these deals are reputedly multi-million uh, dollar, multi-year contracts, um, and uh, when you look at the corporate news reporting on this, it's, it's, it's presented as a big win. Hey, Facebook will finally start paying for the news content that they've been profiting off of at no expense to themselves for years. Um, but when you combine this with our number two story about these think tank partnerships, I think what you see is now it's a pincher movement. So you have on one side the think tanks, and on the other side you have major corporate news entities partnering with Facebook and the target is to squeeze out of these crucial global social media platforms any kind of independent news reporting that is uh, that reports on 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 issues that are uh, unpalatable in the corporate mainstream. Uh, so things like class struggle, inequality, racism, environmental degradation, um, shortcomings in uh, civil liberties, brutality and murder created by state actors. All of these are the things that are the kind of bread and butter reporting of independent news outlets. And I, my, again, my personal belief is that what we're seeing here is a kind of a pincher movement mm -hmm. from multiple sides, think tanks, corporate news media, and then these just social media giants that basically squeeze out independent news uh, independent news reporting, independent journalism. You know, I, I do encourage listeners to, to check out the top censored stories of 2018, 2019. Of course, uh, this is not the only feature of the book, Censored 2020. Could you uh, maybe explain, first of all, it's called Through the Looking Glass, and it, uh -huh. it features the um, uh, the characters from the uh, Lewis Carroll's famous stories, but kind of morphed with figures resembling personalities within the U.S. national security state. Could, could you just explain that, uh, that title and that approach? Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about it in this book. It's kind of the organizing motif for the for the yearbook this year. As Mickey Huff, my uh, co-editor and the director of the project, and I worked on this with 
you know, between the two of us and with our multitude of fantastic collaborators. Uh, and we decided there's really been, in the last year or so, a kind of looking-glass logic to the corporate media, um, which are constantly emphasizing imaginary threats uh, while distracting us from real existential crises, trying to convince us that privacy is a luxury we can't afford in the name of security and, you know, ongoing, uh, you know, efforts uh, 24-7 to manufacture uh, consent at all costs. So there's a kind of looking-glass logic that, to me, uh, uh, is encapsulated in a... Uh, I'll just read very quickly a, a scene from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, where the, the Queen is explaining to Alice that she has to learn to believe impossible things, and Alice refuses to, to believe impossible things. And the Queen says, well, just try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. And Alice laughs and said, there's no use trying. One can't believe impossible things. To which the Queen responds, I dare say you haven't had much practice. And so, you know, I would say in the past year and, and, um, and perhaps tracing back even further, right, the corporate media, like the Red Queen, have sort of been asking us uh, as citizens, as community members, to close our eyes and accept whatever is on offer from them. Um, but, like the Red, uh, but like Alice, um, uh, we know better. Uh, we can refuse to close our eyes and believe impossible things. We can turn to independent news outlets, global research radio, um, uh, for alternative perspectives and views that ground us in the realities of the world rather than the looking-glass logic of the corporate media. I think we have just uh, a little bit of time. Uh, just maybe one of the chapters uh, deals with junk food news. Uh, it's another, uh, another yeah. regular object of critique for Project Censored. What, what is the take in, in this particular article? Yeah, so junk food news is a long-standing uh, concept at Project Censored that takes up the idea that much of what the corporate news media provide us is, is titillating and tasty, maybe the way uh, you know packaged potato chips are. Um, but uh, to continue that food metaphor, you know, at the end of the bag, um, you have a stomachache, but you're still hungry because you haven't had anything of nutritional value. So junk food news is the journalistic equivalent of that. And uh, this year we have a remarkable collection of junk food news stories from Izzy Snow and Susan Rockman at the College of Marin in California. Um, and I, if I can, I'll just dive into one example of the kinds of things they're analyzing as junk food news. Uh, people will remember that in April of this year, uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral in France caught fire, uh, and it also caught fire in terms of news attention. Uh, their U.S. corporate media created supportive hashtags, featured slow-motion drone footage of, of the cathedral as, it was, as the fire was being fought. There were animated simulations of how the fire began and developed, um, Despite the fact that there was proof that the fire was set accidentally, the corporate media speculated on hypothetical sinister motives by radical Islamists. Um, the establishment press, meanwhile, and this is the point of the junk food news chapter, is always to contrast what was on offer, what was highlighted in the corporate news media, with serious stories that deserved more attention than they got. So while the corporate news media around the world were fixated on Notre Dame burning. In southern Louisiana, three predominantly African-American churches uh, were being consumed by arsonist fires. Um, 
the St. Mary Baptist Church, the Greater Union Baptist Church, and the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church uh, were uh, subject to arson. They were targeted as kind of landmarks in the southern Louisiana's black community, and uh, many people believe that the attacks on those churches reflected the general rise in hate crimes uh, that have is well-documented since uh, Donald Trump was elected in 2016. So... Uh, this kind of epitomizes junk food news, right? Uh, on one hand, overwhelming attention for uh, a fire uh, at a, what is a, admittedly a global landmark in Paris. Um, on the other hand, no news coverage for uh, a series of arsons that would, had they been reported, would have uh, forced uh, viewers to confront um, the, the long and uh, brutal legacy of racial injustice uh, in our own country. Hmm. Well, um, sounds like you've really undo- outdone yourselves with this uh, recent release. But uh, Andy, I want to thank you so much for that uh, review of 2019. Uh, I'll talk to you again in a year's time, if not sooner. That, that sounds great, Michael. Thank you so much for featuring Project Censored's work. We've been speaking with Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored. You can order a copy of Censored 2020 and read a list of the organization's most censored stories from previous years by visiting the site projectcensored.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Sometimes the stories that make the front pages of the corporate press are not the ones we should be paying attention to and often distract us from the developments likely to have a more significant impact on our lives and our world. To discuss the important stories of 2019 and their potential repercussions going into 2020, we're joined by the sister-brother team of Abby and Robbie Martin. They are co-hosts of Media Roots Radio, a nonpartisan, radical, political podcast focusing on foreign policy, the police state, and social issues. Uh, producer Abby Martin is an investigative journalist and uh, producer of Telesur's The Empire Files. Uh, she also wrote and directed Gaza Fight for Freedom, a feature documentary about Gaza's protest movement and ongoing struggle through Israel's military and economic strangulation. Robbie Martin is a, win- a writer and filmmaker and produced the three-part documentary, A Very Heavy Agenda, about the rise and persistent role of the neocons within the Washington establishment. And joining me at the CKUW studio is uh, Scott Price. Uh, he's a longtime community radio producer and uh, occasional Global Research NewsHour contributor. Robbie, uh, Abby, what, what really stood out for you over this past year, whether it's an iconic moment or, or maybe even a general trend? Is there anything that... Uh, you that's maybe a bit of a signature for you about uh, this past year um i guess just for me personally one of the most interesting phenomenons has been the mainstreamification of the term the deep state or the people's awareness of the idea of a deep state and to even hear people like sean hannity um, mentioning the deep state every other night on his program, you know, one of the biggest neocon Iraq war cheerleaders there ever was. So it's a fascinating thing. And a lot of people, I think, see it as a positive development. I don't really share that opinion, but I, I just find it personally fascinating. So that's one thing that's really stood out to me in the past year. 
Um, and just in terms of the, the way the dialogue has changed. I think that something that stood out to me in the past year, especially, I mean, it's kind of hard to ignore with the whole election 2020 ramp up with just a ridiculous amount of presidential candidates in the field. The deja vu feeling, this throwback to 2016, where we've learned nothing, where we're pushing all of these centrist candidates um, down our throats, where leftists continue to be blamed and the punching down of the left and third party voters and the blaming of Jill Stein and the Russian mm-hmm. narrative becoming coming to a kind of a culmination, right, where Russiagate kind of fell flat on its face and it's morphed into all these different things and ended up essentially censoring the Internet and, and targeting the voices that um, like us, I mean, global research, media roots, things like this. Uh, that's kind of been the trend that I felt like has really has really come to a head this last year, I think, glaringly so with the election um, and how it's played out so far, where somehow we're we might be stuck with a Joe Biden type figure and who I absolutely think will catastrophically lose and face plant to Donald Trump. And it's just going to be it's just going to be we're going through this whole cycle all over again. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, of course, you, you with that, there's these uh, this impeachment proceedings, which is like a, you know, a, basically a doubling down on that whole uh, narrative. I'm kind of reluctant to talk about that, that whole impeachment uh, uh, situation in the sense that uh, like a lot of what's going on could be considered kind of like palace intrigue, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I find that, uh, you know, we, we like to, you know, like with this show, and I think that the, the, the programming you t- tend to do, and, and also adding in like what Robbie was saying about the deep state, it does seem as if there's a, a growing awareness that there's, there's, there's a larger context, that there's a, a, a ruling uh, uh, elite that, and, and, and a larger agenda on which both the Democrats and the Republicans uh, are aligned. Mm-hmm. And so it, it seems kind of uh, – I don't know if you want to, to comment on, on how that, uh, uh, th- that awareness is some, starting to display itself through, you know, through the, the news stories of the past year. Well, yeah, I mean the, I think what I meant by the mainstreamification of the deep state and, and people like Sean Hannity adopting the term to talk about you know, Trump's political rivals and, and the Democrats is that there is a growing awareness of it and it's clear that you know the deep state or whatever these ruling class factions are have made more obvious moves since trump has gotten in office like what abby raised is the censoring of the internet you know silicon valley working with things like the digital forensics lab of the atlantic council and the weekly standard or facebook um you know having this fake news board now where um, they're working with Atlantic Council and Snopes and things like that to filter out disinformation, as they call it. So I think what you'll what you're seeing is um, basically there. It's a, it's a sort of a limited hangout where you'll see people like Sean Hannity adopting this term, and they're creating a convenient narrative with it. When in fact, um, I I like to take so like we mentioned impeachment, for example, and how much it's palace intrigue. Well, I'm I'm very fascinated by the things that both of the sort of narratives aren't talking about, the rivaling narratives about impeachment. So one good example I like to raise is um, Paul Singer, uh, one of the top neocon GOP mega donors, who basically was puppeteering Marco Rubio through the 2016 election. Um, he 
and his cutout operation, Washington Free Beacon, which is a neoconservative, it's a smaller outlet, but it's a neoconservative outlet. Your pr- listeners are probably familiar with it, mm-hmm. was actually the entity that originally bankrolled the Fusion GPS Trump Oppo Research Project. Now, the Republicans have been trying to keep it in this convenient framework where it was only the Democrats, you know, the Democratic deep state or whatever you know that's supposed to mean that did this to Trump. But if you really zoom out from it a little bit, you'll see that it was actually a bipartisan effort. And the fact that neoconservatives were the ones at the tip of the spear of this. Um, so to think that Paul Singer had no idea that Glenn Simpson's Fusion GPS project was going to try to dig up Russian dirt on Trump to me is laughable. But for somehow we're trapped in this, you know, more partisan framework now about it, where Paul Singer's name doesn't even come up in this uh, Horowitz report, for example, which is half about the Steele dossier. But you don't even see the person who originally funded the project. And it's like, well, why is that? Um, So I I guess that's sort of what I like to do on Media Roots Radio with Abby is, you know, try to hone in on these areas where that nobody's really talking about, but I think need to be raised and sort of attached to this larger, you know, these larger narratives. But I do think that you're right about the Trump presidency kind of revealing the empire's hand, um, removing the mask, right, where people are kind of aware, I think, politically conscious of the fact that we're living in an oligarchy. Uh, The approval rate of the corporate media is at an all-time low. I mean, I think that's why the term fake news has had so much success. Unfortunately, it's been a partisan issue, right? Like Robbie said, this uh, partisan um, ploy to make it seem like the deep state is the Democrats, like fake news is whatever doesn't worship Donald Trump. Um, but really, as we know, this is a bipartisan effort, and it has been since the beginning of you know the, the rise of, of the U.S. empire. And so I think that especially with the youth under Trump, and you could argue with the Bernie Sanders movement, I think are waking up to this kind of dog and pony show. Uh, they're becoming more disillusioned with two-party politics and the entrenched establishment that is a bipartisan foreign policy consensus, the media establishment, and just rejecting that whole cloth. I mean, you can also say that they're rejecting capitalism, which is uh, a, a you know basically the, the religion of the United States. So I think that it's really interesting trends that we're seeing take root, and I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was always in uh, uh, in the last this last year uh, of of even your shows, uh, your show Media Roots, listening because uh, I, I listen to it uh, f- very regularly, and always those points about like I thought it, it is a, an interesting thing to see is that sort of the like the deep state, and even that even gets into the whole QAnon thing, almost basically being weaponized for partisan purposes, even though. Like you both rightly point out, like this thing about a, a deep state is not uh, a partisan; it's not a Democrat issue, right? But it's interesting to see how that gets, uh, how that's been sort of weaponized in a way. And like, and even with the whole QAnon thing, it's like, well, are you telling me that there's not like weird perverts in the Republican Party too? Like, uh, <laughs> like, like, like that's it, it's like it's like on the face of it, you're just like, well, come on now, let's not be that naive. But it's inter- it's interesting to see that. Um, oh, but 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 uh, interesting to see it getting traction though. That's the interesting mm-hmm. thing that people are actually glomming onto that in some way, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is what it is." And you're like, "Well, like, it's almost um, I don't know, like uh, I don't know how 
you all feel about this, but it's almost like there was this promise of the internet and it was going to do all these things and social media. And then, but then you see uh, sort of, we've been, I think over the last year or two years, seen more of the dark side of it and how the, these things aren't really what we thought they were going to be. Maybe they're more dead ends than they are an opening up of anything just because of the control by Silicon Valley and these other political forces is, is kind of what yeah. I kind of see, you know? Well, yeah, I think it gave us a, a lot of us a sense of false hope that we, you know, in a lot of ways we do, we did. And I think maybe even global research and you guys could attest to this or not um, benefited at first from social media, getting our stuff out there. So it seemed like, you know, that it was going to continue on that trajectory. And I think that that false hope, um, you know, sort of looking back, especially for me, um, it seems rather naive because these companies were obviously on some level trying to get us to buy in to something. And now they've revealed their true colors of what they're all about. They're basically working hand in glove with the government and D.C. think tanks to essentially put us into this tunnel vision on the Internet. I mean, even Google now openly says they derank things. You know, well, that in and of itself is censorship. If they're just arbitrarily, well, not even arbitrarily, but deliberately deranking things like from RT or even things from Media Roots, um, websites all over the country noticed a huge decline in their traffic that were pushing against U.S. empire. Even antiwar.org noticed a huge drop off in their traffic. Counterpunch did as well. Um, you know, so it's 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 seriously happening. Um, but yeah, I think the QAnon thing is fascinating. For other reasons um, than the ones you mentioned, because I think we we are too comfortable right now, and I think we saw a glimpse a couple of weeks ago of what would happen if the Trump administration decided to flip that switch to take us back to the George W. Bush post 9/11 era. And what I mean by that is announcing that there will be imminent attacks and that we need to do military acts to stop imminent attacks. I think if we get stuck back in that gear under Trump, things could get very dark very quickly. And I don't just mean because it will resemble the Bush era. It might be, actually be scarier because we have things like QAnon, which is a Pied Piper movement that is just ready to brown shirt for anything Trump does. So mm -hmm. with all that combined from the Bush era, the Patriot Act, the NDAA, all these things are still in place. So why aren't we still worried about those things now that Trump is in office? Is it because people like Jones and QAnon have been telling us trust the plan? I think it has a large part to do with that, actually, because normally even the conspiracy movement would be telling us to really worry right now. This is the closest we've ever been to war with Iran. Start worrying. There might be people trying to pull shit to get us into war with Iran. And the conspiracy movement is virtually dead silent on that. It's all about the you know trusting the plan or, or whatever so yeah this hijacking of conspiracy culture to make it right wing right and, and make it worship the sitting president i find absolutely fascinating it's something that my brother and i discuss quite a bit because if you look at historically you know peter dale scott and other scholars who are critics of the deep state and intellectual heavyweights that discuss these issues i mean the deep state the notion of it is a honestly like a left critique sometimes of power i mean it's just a power construct of that that largely is bipartisan so it's just it's absolutely fascinating how it's been weaponized and used and exploited by the trump administration to essentially take the conspiracy movement with him for a ride 
um, you know, people 10, 15 years ago who were questioning all the things that my brother just touched upon now just trust that Trump is looking out for them and that mm-hmm. all of this is somehow part of some larger plan, even putting their trust behind someone like Eric Prince, the fascist ruler of Blackwater, who I just find stunning. So it just seems like people have really lost their way, uh, severed ties with reality completely where, you know, we're, we're listening to some Pied Piper online instead of really questioning authority, questioning the power structures uh, like we should be all along. And when you do question those uh, those structures and those systems in, in a consistent way, then you get uh, diverted into this uh, realm where they'll call you a, a Russian. Uh, so what used to be simply <laughs> considered a, you know, a, well, we're just holding power to account now. Oh, you're an apologist for the Russians or you're a Russian troll or, or, or whatever. I guess maybe it's more China now, but. Uh, <laughs> um, oh yeah, I was just I, just really quickly. I was just telling Abby the other day on I think we did, said this on the last media roots that it's actually almost shocking to think that in 2016 the media, you know, even Fox News started uh, broadcasting some of those WikiLeaks DNC dumps as it got close to the election. I can't even see that scenario happening now. I feel like the ruling classes and the Silicon Valley companies would do everything they can to stop something like that from being disseminated online. Um, they're actually banning people right now on Instagram for praising Soleimani. They're saying that they're, an official policy is that you get your posts removed and your account suspended if you do it. I mean, huh. so this is how far they've already gone. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think that it's, we're, we're ahead. We're, we should be ready for some even darker times ahead with the way they're going to censor people on the and internet. How, and how press TV just got canceled. Yes. YouTube. I mean, in the in the height of a war escalation, a buildup to potentially lead us to a catastrophic war, they are censoring state television that we, we deserve. We have the right to hear their perspective, the countries that are under the crosshairs of U.S. empire. stands out for you uh, through, ev- through the last 12 months that uh, seem to be a, a kind of a high point or, or low point from the standpoint of, of the empire's uh, expansion? Yeah, I mean, I would say that for all of uh, Trump's rhetoric about how he's an anti-interventionist and tweeting end- endless wars and people just really latch onto that and, you know, go off with these think pieces and all the things that we're talking about, his actions have spoken much much louder. And as I've been talking about with the Soleimani assassination, he has taken um, several steps that I think are beyond his predecessors. I mean, for the fact that he bombed Assad directly, that was something Obama wasn't willing to do. The fact that he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, something that was just kind of rhetorically endorsed by previous presidents, uh, that was devastating. That culminated in the Great March of Return, um, you know, responsible for the death, the sniping down of hundreds of Palestinians. Um, I, I mean, the execution of, of Soleimani was something that was pretty unprecedented, right? This is a foreign leader, and that was shocking. The attempted coup in Venezuela was stunning. The Bolivia coup was stunning. So all of these things that are kind of revamping something from the 60s and 70s, hiring people like Elliot Abrams, um, these sinister figures that were overseeing some pretty disastrous policies. I mean, death squads and and assassinations and and open coups taking us back to that time, I found very disturbing and troubling. 
You take that on top of the sanctions, which we know are war, which we know are genocidal. Trump has ramped those up to such devastating amounts um, that just in Venezuela alone, 40,000 have died in the last two years, according to CEPR. So this is something that's very, very real. This is something that has dire effects, and it's not uh, it's not diplomatic whatsoever. This is an act of war and aggression, and it's killing people every day. So the fact that Trump has taken those things to new heights and, and is willing to expand the empire in these ways is something that we should all be very concerned about. Yeah, I think Abby touched on, I mean, the, I, I don't really have much to add to that, except I would agree that the killing of Soleimani is one of the biggest um, escalations we've ever seen. I mean, I was trying to figure out the other day, you know, which administration uh, since 9-11 has been the most hawkish on Iran um, rhetorically and in, in terms of their actions. And I would say it so far has been the Trump administration, which kind of surprised even me when I really put all you know the, the facts on the table and really looked over everything. So um, it, it's but the but the scary thing is Trump is like Abby said is talking out both sides of his mouth and making a lot of people distracted into this avenue of believing that it's well it's going to be okay because he he reeled this back this time well we just experienced that in the early summer I mean after that drone shoot down it was like oh you know and that's what I raised earlier about um, Tucker Carlson that apparently. You know, the news is reporting that a conversation or phone call with Tucker Carlson is what made Trump to decide not to escalate in both of these instances beyond what he had already done. But as I was saying, the killing of Soleimani is one of the biggest escalations we've ever seen. I mean, I think war is on right now. So to think that we avoided war or this time we somehow sidestepped it because things didn't get escalated beyond that, I don't think we've seen the end of this. I mean, this is this is still going to be a really dangerous situation moving forward. Yeah, and then I, I guess in a way, like with it's it's um, like the span the overall expansion because like what you were just saying, Robbie, about like this is the one administration or since nine eleven that's probably been the most belligerent towards Iran. But then you also think about the ramping up in the the he- the Western Hemisphere here uh, in in Central and South America, and what that's going to hold for the next you know for the rest of. Trump's term and whether or not he's going to get reelected or whatever, but like the prospects of that is actually pretty amazing because even uh, like just like the overall expansion. And I know uh, Abby, you did a really great uh, segment for Empire Files about the Trump's expansion of the empire. That no, he's not contracting it. And I think after this last year, it it's kind of after 2019, it's kind of hard to deny that because it's like on it's expanding it on several fronts here. Right, it's not only in the Middle East; it's also in Central and South America as well, and and there's probably even more that we probably don't even hear about. Right? Totally, like him saying, you know, he got rid of John Bolton because he wasn't hawkish enough. Um, kind of redirecting not only to the, the redirecting to that region. Right? You said in Latin America, the troika of tyranny. Mm-hmm. So morphing this into now a war on socialism, um, and you know while this kind of resurrection of the pink tide was happening, setting its sights on destroying any sort of progressive or left movements in that entire region of the world. And that has been completely devastating. Um, Every single country has been affected by the U.S. empire's war there. Um, You know, Cuba is is now 
the genocidal blockade has been doubled down. The normalization has been reversed completely. I mean, just the repercussions of Bolivia alone, the massacres that took place after this kind of Christian theocratic fascist takeover uh, that we know was plotted from the U.S. Embassy. Secret recordings came out that showed that the Trump administration was intimately involved in that. And the fact that Juan Guaido and his cohorts are still being paid um, tens of millions of dollars through USAID to basically maintain a shadow government. I mean, they are not letting up despite the strength of the Bolivarian Revolution. So it is not over there. And I'm just scared that a second term of Trump will really see uh, devastating things happen in that region that will kill much, much more people. Mark Carney of uh, the Bank of England, who used to be with the uh, Bank of Canada, and he said that the, the U.S. dollar is uh, – uh, I can't remember what the exact word was, but it's uh, – that basically they're going to be moving away. That's – it's days are numbered. That was the the quote that was at uh, really wow. That was in August. Uh, you know, at, at the same time that all of these uh, events were happening around the, uh, um, you know, the, the the lowering of the the yuan, which basically, uh, which makes it uh, Chinese uh, merchandise a lot uh, less expensive. So, but Michael, the stock the stock market's doing well. So isn't the economy doing <laughs> yeah. great? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't worry at all. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, of course, uh, yeah. If, if you don't factor in things like the, uh, the, the labor participation, you know, and uh, that, yeah, the prison industrial complex has been a really big uh, uh, assistance in that regard. It's a growth like, industry for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, like thinking about what's been going on over the last little bit in the year, uh, the last couple years is uh, just like fires. I mean, because on Media Roots, uh, you've talked about it because of the, of the fires in uh, in California, which, you know, uh, I know affected you, Robbie, and we see what's going on in Australia. Um, just this last year, I think, was some of the fires uh, that they've had earlier in the season that's been close to the Arctic Circle, like in the north of Scandinavia, as well as in Canada. But just the frequency and the ferocity of them is just more. And there's been times where I even living here my whole life i've never seen i've never seen smoke like that in my life like yeah. where the sun was like kind of obscured for a couple of days like i've never seen anything like that uh and that i don't know how uh how, how you how you guys feel about that too but i feel like that's a big thing that i think about uh yeah. now just at, it, it, it's, at it's least happened it's in, a symptom of the, the climate catastrophe that we're, we're yeah, looking at absolutely and i the, think so there've been a lot of reports increasingly dire reports coming out from scientists about where we're headed i mean this is uh these are things that we're going to be dealing with mm-hmm. well it's just it's just unfortunate you know because you would think that there could be some kind of bipartisan consensus on something needs to be done about climate change, uh, just on in a general sense, maybe not what to do about it, but that something needs to be done about it. But there's like I, I kept seeing this one story that really bothered me where it was like some of the fires were discovered to have been started by arsonists. So that means it has nothing to do with climate change. And it's like, well, wh- what are you talking about? The whole point to all this is that the brush is so dry mm-hmm. and that there's such a lack of moisture and rainfall that because of climate change, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's arson or if it started from a power line or what, or a lightning strike. It w- that's not the issue. It's that this the the magnitude of the fires is worsened by the state of climate change that we're in right now. So it just bugs me when I see those. I guess I'm just you know I'm just probably rea- reacting to that um, t- a little too much. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean 
in California, I mean, it, we we are on the verge of some kind of major major crisis. If you you know if you don't think there's already one happening, well, there's going to be one happening very soon. Um, and you know, right now we're it's a moist season. There's there's regular rainfall, but um, as soon as we're out of that season again, it's going to be right back on PG&E, the power company that serves hundreds of millions or not hundreds of millions, but tens of millions of customers out here. Um, will arbitrarily shut the power off to avoid liability um, the next time there's wind because they don't want to be liable for any fire. So um, mm-hmm. this is this is a crisis that's going to continue happening. And, uh, you know, if you thought the Enron scandal was bad where they were doing rolling blackouts for the fun of it, well, this is actually a worse crisis that's not getting enough attention here in California now. Um, and it's going to keep happening. And Gavin Newsom's acquiescence uh with pg&e and you know the lobbying revolving door with pg&e just i think it really just defines what our future hellscape will be fires raging on in the state um with just political compliance and complete servitude to this corporate takeover that uh, pg&e essentially holding tens of millions of people hostage (laughs) without the ability to really do anything about it um and that's where we are that's where we're at that's where we're at um, if things don't change. And it's kind of like the, the proverbial frogs in the pot of boiling water. I think people just don't know what to do. And we're so used to being beaten down by these corporations. Australia is particularly horrifying because, of course, we're talking about a, a, an entire continent um, you know, that, that's essentially dealing with this right now. It's spreading over to New Zealand. The New Zealand skies are also orange. There's people fleeing on boats. Just that study that came out that was absolutely shocking about a half of a half a billion animals mm. that have been affected slash killed affected meaning haven't been killed yet, but they will be dead soon because they are without food and water and I mean this isn't even including bats or insects and frogs, so just imagine imagine what that is doing to the landscape with just a couple months of these fires. And unfortunately, like my brother said, we're not even at the place where we can talk about this logically. Uh, we're living in such a brainwashed society and people are so conditioned into this weird partisan politics where you just like are in denial of basic science that we still have to argue these points. While the world is burning, we're still arguing about the merits of if climate change is real or not. And I just I just don't know where this is going to go because as we know, um, even the Green New Deal doesn't doesn't really address um, things like biomass, which is essentially, you know, what's called alternative energy and renewable energy. And it's really just burning wood um, done by a lot of these same corporations that are responsible for the worst oil and and um, fracking and all the rest. So we're not really getting to the root, which I think is the consumption, mm. how this level of consum- consumption is completely um impossible to maintain. Robbie and uh, Abby Martin, I, I want to thank you so much. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, it's uh, probably a bit of a pain from time to time, but I, I think you've really uh, done a lot to open a lot of people's eyes, uh, including my own. And uh, I'm sure Scott will say the same. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks so much. And um, your site is mediaroots.org. Correct. MediaRoots.org. You can listen to Media Roots Radio on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any uh, podcast platform available. Check it out. And thank you so much, Michael and Scott. You guys do great work. We really appreciate the time and uh, the partnership here. And let's just keep lifting each other up. Great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Okay. Thanks for thanks. all the work you do. 
You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks to occasional contributor and co-host Scott Price for joining us this week. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.